श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय ग्रंथराज श्रीमद् भागवतम की जय सो कंटिन्यूइंग आवर डिस्कशन ऑफ श्रीमद् भागवतम फर्स्ट कैंटो चैप्टर 7 chapter begins with uh, the sages asking Sudha Goswami to please describe further what did Vyas do after having been instructed by Narada of course we know he was instructed to sit in meditation samadhi nanusmrutad vicheshtadam so he did that and now Sudha Goswami has begun to reveal the uh, insights that Vyas received in his meditation which as we've learned at this point now gave rise to Srimad Bhagavatam we heard that he saw the personality of godhead along with his internal energy his rup shakti he saw the maya shakti at some distance he saw the jiva shakti overwhelmed by the maya shakti and he saw the remedial measure for the jiva in that condition to be bhakti yoga bhakti of course is the essence of the srup shakti so as we have discussed the influence of the srup shakti can very easily dispel the influence of maya because after all it can overwhelm the parama purusha krishna himself so what to speak of dispelling the shadow of maya shakti <coughs> so with the ingress of bhakti into the life of the jiva then the problem resulting from his association with maya is resolved and and more there's great positive gain <coughs> liberation and more up to prem prem is the subject really here and so having revealed in brief the the trance of vyas um which gave rise to the bhagavatam there this is i've said in other discussions on this chapter is in one sense the hub around which the bhagavatam orbits because that which vyas experienced in his trance gave rise to the bhagavatam as the text is explaining and so we have to look then at various verses from the bhagavatam in relation to what was experienced in the trance to understand them in context in the words the context here is that he saw bhagavan and he saw parasya shakti vibhavishvite that brahman the absolute bhagavan shri krishna uh, was possessed of innumerable shaktis these three principal shaktis have been described so we've heard some sambandhagyam the relationship between bhagavan and the maya shakti and the jivas and the maya shakti and so on and so forth there's some discussion about the remedial measure bhakti yoga this is abhideya tattva has been uh, uh that has been discussed and the the prayojan also attainment of prem has also been uh discussed and so 
These are the three basic topics of the Vedic texts, uh, Sambandha, Bideya, Prayojan, and here we find a doctrine of Beda Beda means Achinti Beda means the inconceivable, and not oneness sometimes and different sometimes, but the simultaneous oneness and difference between Bhagawan and his Shaktis. Hmm? That he's not alone, he has Shaktis, they're dependent upon him. <coughs> They're one with him in that sense, but different from him at the same time. So, this then is the basic core of the metaphysic of the Bhagavatam. So, if some verses seem to be speaking, for example, in an Advaitin sense, which some of them do, they use words that might lead us to believe that we have to balance that in relation to what's being said here. And... Um, to come to the proper understanding, because this is what Vyasa experienced in, metaf- in, in Vedantic language, the achinti beda veda, the inconceivable the, the simultaneous oneness and difference between Bhagavan and his shaktis. So Bhagavatam is playing out, of course, all the implications of that. And so it's said that... Um, Having experienced these things, then um, Vyas set and uh, he compiled the Bhagavatam. Here's our verse tonight. Sasamhitam Bhagavatim Kritvanu Kramya Chatmajam Shukam Adyapayam Asa Nibrit so it said that a sage Vyas he thus Kritvanu Kramya Chatmajam Kritvanu Nukram. So having it means having having already done the Bhagavatam, he did it again. The idea is that the Bhagavatam had already been compiled and but not in a manner that um, fully left Vyas feeling accomplished and satisfied. Of course, then Nard came and enlightened him and so forth, and so he went back and re-edited the book, added some things. Um, I mean, he went into trance, as you see, he had his realizations and so forth, and, and so the final edition, if you will, of the text was brought out Kritva Anukramya, so he um, corrected it, he, he repeated it, he did it again. This is the idea. Then Chatmajam Shukam. He had a son, Atmajam, who was born from himself. His name was Shukam. Sukadev. And he uh, he was Nibrti Niratamuni. He was a great uh, renunciate. And somehow or other, Vyas was able to capture him and teach him the Bhagavatam. And this is curious, and the sages, headed by Sonaka, pick up on it right away, thinking this Sukadeva was fully renounced. That means... He's a realized person. Hmm? And 
nivriti and niratam. He was fully engaged on the nivriti marg. He was. It means the path of renunciation. He he was typically uh, said to be dressed in uh, in uh, whatever his birthday suit. He was naked and oblivious to uh, external conditions and so forth. So, uh, what are you going to teach a person like this? Hmm? And what to speak of teaching him a book like the Bhagavatam, which is not an easy book. Therefore, Sonaka says, Savai nibriti nirata savatru pekshako muni kasyava vibritim vibratim etam atmarama samabhyasat. So he says that uh, Sugadev was already a great realized soul who was, he uses the word here, Atmaram, completely satisfied in himself. So he's self-realized. Why would he take the trouble to uh, to undergo the study of the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is a vast literature? We know it has, what, 335 chapters and 18,000 verses, and it's very uh, complex uh, book. Why would a person who's fully realized take up a study of the Bhagavatam? It's a very astute inquiry on the part of Shonaka. Hmm. Here's a person that the implication is, is who is beyond books. Hmm. And he's going to go and study the Bhagavatam. There's a nice story to all this. Hopefully we'll get a chance to tell it in these upcoming classes. So Sutta, anyway, responds with a very, very important, famous verse of the Bhagavatam. Hmm? It says, hmm? This is the famous Atmarama verse. It was um, particularly made famous by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu for Gaudiya Vaishnavas, and not that it's not an important verse uh, on, it, on its own. I mean, it is, and he pointed it out in no uncertain terms. And that, in the context of his being taught, if you will, by Sarvabhama Bhattacharya. The Bhattacharya was uh, a very, very learned scholar, so much so that he used to school young sannyasis in Vedanta, they could become fixed up in the logic of the scriptures, the concordance of them, how they all asserted the same point, and and in this way they would be uh, fortified in their vows. Of course, the basic discussion there is that your consciousness not matter. Hmm? This is, of course, now becoming known as the the great mystery of the day. It's about time we figured that out here in the Western world. For centuries, consciousness was ignored by the intellectual elite in the Western society as something that just didn't uh, have much consequence and didn't, they didn't have a place for it. But it's finding its way uh, again into the, into the uh, mainstream of intellectual and introspective uh, discourse. And 
here we, we, we find, of course, that uh, the Hindus had this right, the Bhagavatam had this right, the Vedanta had this right, the Gita had this right, this is the subject, this is the mystery, this is what is to be explored, not the external world. In fact, the whole idea of the Bhagavatam is we'll explore the external world only in such a way that it will give rise to helping us understand the uh, observer of it all, consciousness, what makes it worth observing, <laughs> something like that. <clears throat> so they had, of course, subjective, uh, developed subjective disciplines for exploring that. And therefore you have the Brahman, the Paramatma, Bhagavan, for example, in lower stages. Um, this is what the Bhagavatam really uh, talks about. Hmm? Uh, exploration by subjective methodology into consciousness. In, in other words, a methodology that was not um, for a subjective metho- methodology for un- understanding a subjective uh, ontological reality, ontology. Um, in now in the Western world, as I say, we find this interest in, in consciousness, but there's been a, an effort to understand it from an objective point of view. But it's subjective. It's first person, subjective, not third person, objective. So to try to understand what it is and by a third person objective ontological from that perspective by by that type of a method the method which modern science for example goes about exploring the rest of the physical world and finding out about it and and and, and so forth this is not going to reveal much about the consciousness you can find out something about the effects of it hmm? and um, how there's a correlation in the brain with it but what it is and so forth. This is not the case. I heard a fellow the other night, David Chalmers, who's famous in philosophy um, for his uh, insights about consciousness, Australian fellow, and he was readily saying that he thought that the Eastern um, traditions had some interesting uh, uh, subjective methods for exploring the subjective reality that were worth exploring hmm? if we were to uh, perhaps get a better handle on what, what consciousness is. So, I mean, I don't want to go into any length of this, but the point is that this, uh, to the credit of the Bhagavatam, the Gita and all of the Vedanta, is the subject. Hmm? Consciousness is, they figured it out a long time ago, this is what life's about, this is the mystery. The fact that they were not very uh, developed in terms of their understanding of material nature is not uh, compared to the extent to which we understand details of of the objective world is not reason to dismiss them. They had their focus and their their sights on the subject that ultimately we must turn to. Like I said in a, in a recent uh, post on Facebook. <laughs> that uh, consciousness is a problem for modern science. As much as modern science is trying to understand consciousness to be part of the objective, physical, natural, material world, 
Because hmm? if it's not, then there's something that's other than matter, and we're slipping into metaphysics and the supernatural and all of that um, uh, subjective, unsure stuff <laughs> that you can't quite measure and and predict entirely and and hold in the fist of your intellect and control and so forth. Hmm? So, um, so in that sense, consciousness is a problem because it's not fitting in, it's not conforming, and uh, and and of course, although it's a problem, in this sense, without it, there would be no science at all. So consciousness is primary. Consciousness, logically, it's not that you know that consciousness evolves out of matter. That's a very illogical idea because it's a very entirely categorically different thing. Substance is not even a thing. Hmm? Some people have posited, well, just like bile comes out of the liver, you know, at a certain point, well, consciousness comes out of the brain. But I mean, bile and liver are two physical things. Consciousness is, you know, is, is entirely different. So that's not reasonable. Hmm. Um, so, if anyway, if we want to understand it, we need a different methodology, and there are developed methodologies from the East. And uh, so, here, for example, in the Bhagavatam, the great three insights as to the the the, the, the full measure of consciousness, all in the what's called Turiya, the fourth beyond. We have waking. Consciousness, dream consciousness, deep sleep consciousness, and beyond. So, Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan, hmm? Gyan, Yoga, Bhakti, and so forth. So this is very, very contemporary, as I've many times said, cutting edge and important uh, subject matter. And and uh, this uh, Sukadev was pretty well uh, off into that uh, subject. He was a type of a graduate, but still, um, so, but why he would become interested in uh, the Bhagavatam, it's a good question, because, well, as we're here, because it is what it is. It's the postgraduate study of consciousness. So at any rate, Sarvamumbhata Charja, he was very learned, and he was uh, often engaged in teaching uh, young sannyasis about these c- conclusions about Vedanta that consciousness is is uh, what life is about, hmm? not matter, not pursuing the sense objects and so forth, or the thoughts that arise in the mind, not to be driven by them. Hmm? So, which could pull on, especially a young young person. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was only twenty four years old. And um, very charming person, and so forth. So it's easy to think that he could be become distracted. So Sarvam wanted to educate him, and Mahaprabhu acquiesced to that, treated him like a loving you know, uncle and Sikshu guru. And so the discourse on Vedanta from Sarvabhoma, you can imagine that was learned. Hmm? Here he was the teacher of many sannyasis, and uh, the most learned uh, logician in all of India. But uh, Mahaprabhu Chaitanya Dev sat for seven days and listened and said nothing. This is an uh, indication 
of the quality of um, gravity, one of the qualities of the personality of God. Krishna exhibited this quality when Brahma offered with four heads so many beautiful prayers in the Bhagavatam after seeing the opulence of Bhagavan Sri Krishna in the Brahma Vimohan Lila when Krishna manifested Narayans and universes coming out of the Narayans and so forth. So he offered many, many prayers and Krishna just sat there and said nothing. This is said to be um, a sign of his gravity. It's a good tactic sometimes in discussion or in debate to sit quietly and your opponent, the more he talks, the more he starts to think, why isn't he saying anything? Does he understand me? Have I explained it right? He starts to become a little weak. Hmm? And then <laughs> the point where you can come back and and make your point. Hmm? He starts to think, he starts to wonder, is this guy stupid? Maybe he's really smart. Maybe I, maybe I haven't, maybe I'm not saying it right, or something like that. It can create a teachable movement, that kind of exhibition of gravity. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu just sat like gravity, you know, wait. Hmm? He heard the words of Sarvabhoma and and he drew Sarvabhoma down off of his high horse of being the teacher and brought him into a teachable moment himself. He said, I've been talking for seven days. Do you understand? I mean, you haven't said anything. And just before he had done that, he kind of gave his final um, display of knowledge and of, of the scripture by way of explaining this Atmarama verse in, I think, seven different ways. Was it seven different ways, I think? Hmm? Taking and showing seven different complete meanings, something like that, seven or nine, something like that, which was an extraordinary uh, measure of scholarship. Mahabharata just sat, and so he then he, he, he asked, well, do you understand? He said, well, I understand what you said, but I don't think it made any sense. I think that you've covered, you know, like you can say something, that doesn't mean it makes sense. Just like a materialist can say, I think that matter is, the consciousness is matter. You can, you can say it, but you can also say two and two is five, you know. That doesn't mean it makes any sense. We, we think that consciousness is, is independent of matter. We don't think that, that consciousness um, uh, evolves or emerges out of matter. Hmm? Um, but we do, in a sense, think that, that matter is derived from consciousness, although they're separate ontologically. Nonetheless, um, matter, even, like I say, materialism, the, the idea of materialism, is derived from consciousness. So matter drives meaning, we could say, from consciousness. Of course, both are the shaktis of Bhagwan, and this is another, so they have consciousness as the source. But at any rate, hmm? Mahabhu then said, yes, I've understood what you said, but it doesn't make any sense. I think that the sutras are very clear, but you have, like the sun, but you have clouded them with an imaginary interpretation of them. The implication in Chaitanya Charitamrita is that he spoke some form of of mayavad or oneness, absolute oneness between the jiva 
and and Brahman. And as we hear from the texts here, Jiva was not in Vyasa's experience one with Brahman. Why not? How did he realize that the Jiva Shakti was not one with Brahman? Who can say? Precisely, because he saw the jiva in difficulty under the influence of maya. And how did he see maya in relation to Bhagwan? At a distance. It means she had no scope for influencing him whatsoever. Hmm? But the jiva was troubled by the influence of maya. Yasam mohita jiva atmanam trigunatmakam. Hmm? In fact, he starts to talk about the jiva shakti. First he says he saw Bhagwan in his fullness, Paramapurusha, which indicates fullness means with his shakti, his primary shakti. In Leela, this is his fullness. It means Swayam Bhagavan, in his fullness, Paramapurusha. Later it said, Krishna, Krishna, Paramapurusha, Paramapurusha, Krishna, in the same verses, introductory verses here describing the trance. So, he saw Krishna, the Paramapurusha. Krishna is not alone. Hmm? Krishna means the absolute dancing under the influence of his Surup Shakti in Leela. So he saw Bhagawan. He saw his Surup Shakti intimately intertwined with him. And he saw Maya Shakti at a distance. Apashat Purusham Purnam Maya Chatara Pashrayam. Maya Chatara at a distance. means can never have any influence. No, it doesn't, doesn't appear there in Leela, that's at a distance. Then, yayasam mohita jiva, atmanam trigunabhakame. As soon as he starts to talk about jiva, he again starts to talk about maya. <laughs> they are intertwined. That possibility is there. This is what he saw. The jiva shakti, yayasam mohita jiva, bewildered by maya, atmanam trigunabhakame, under the influence of the modes of nature. Hmm? So, he obviously saw that there's a difference between the jiva and uh, and Brahman, they're not one in all respects. Hmm? He also saw, as we've said, that there was a remedial measure. He saw what the remedial, remedial measure for the jiva was to become freed from the influence of Maya, which was the ingress of bhakti yoga. And bhakti is the essence of the sarup shakti. So this sarup shakti, the primary shakti of Bhagwan, that making its ingress into the jiva. Hmm. Maya goes away. Hmm. So, um, and here we find Bhagavatam is what? The natural commentary of Vedanta Sutra. It's very clear. Hmm. And this again is the hub around which the Bhagavatam orbits, if you will. So, Mahaprabhu said this idea that the Jiva and Brahman are one in all respects, absolutely. This is the cloud of your imagination by which you've covered the, the sun-like, clear uh, teachings of the sutras mm. that are commented on by the author in the form of Sumad Bhagavatam, for example. This is Mahaprabhu's, very central to Mahaprabhu's teaching. So, he then began to speak on the Atmarama verse. Remember now, Sarabhama had given about seven or so different meanings, which is quite a feat of scholarship scholarship 
And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu gave 60-some meanings of the verse. And Sarvabhuma said, Oh my God, you're God. My brother-in-law said you're God, and I didn't believe it. And I dismissed him as being a little foolish. After all, I'm the big scholar. And, you know, he quoted some verses, but hmm, they could be interpreted in different ways. But now I see for myself. Hmm. Sarvabhuma's brother-in-law, Gopinath, had told him, you shouldn't think that you can teach him. He's Bhagwan. <laughs> what do you mean he's Bhagwan? Hmm. This is how he responded. Gopinath said, well, when you get the mercy, then you'll understand. Yeah, okay. When I get the mercy, then I'll understand. Okay. So he got it, <laughs> and he understood. And the great conversion of Sarvabhoma. Hmm. So a very important verse. Later, this verse is explained in Chaitanya Charitamrita in 60-some different ways when Chaitanya Dev instructed Sanatana Goswami in all the teachings, over about three chapters, the Sanatana Siksha comes. And after it's all over, Sanatana Goswami, being a scholar of the Bhagavatam himself, says, you know, I heard you explained that in like 60-some different ways, this Atrama verse to Sarvabhoma. You know, I'm just wondering if, could you like tell me all those explanations? That must be extraordinary. And Mahavadu Mahaprabhu say, ah, there I was impudent, impudently, I spoke up in the presence of the great Sarvabhoma, and something came to my mind, what it was, I, I cannot say, I cannot remember. Hmm. And this is his humility, he said, but if you like, I'll try to say something now. And he gave another 60-some meanings on Srimad Bhagavatam. Remember, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's nickname at home in Nadia was Nimai Pandit. Hmm. No one could defeat him. Hmm. But he discarded knowledge hmm, as... Uh, for if, uh, for, for an embraced bhakti. And um, basically he was exhibiting a teaching in the Bhagavatam that dry knowledge is just like beating the chaff of the wheat uh, when the rice has already come out. There's nothing nothing to get out of that. Logic is circular. Vedanta says... Tarko Pratishtana. You never get anywhere by that. There's always another argument. Hmm? Shrutapanta. Hear from the authorities in the Guru Parampara and and, and uh, give submissive oral reception to those who have seen and so forth and can represent the texts accurately and so on. So, this way the Atmarama verse became, has become famous in Gaudi Vaishnavism through uh, these incidences. And um, that's recorded the many, ex- many explanations that Krishna's Kaviraj Das offers as the explanations that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu gave to Sanatana Goswami. So the verse runs like this, Atparamas chamunayo niagranta api urukrame kurvante hai tukim bhaktim itam budugunohari I'm just going to give one meaning here. <laughs> The uh, one and important meaning, the the real for for all of us, uh, Godias and beyond. The real essential meaning here is is the answer to the very astute question of Shonaka: Why the self-realized person would bother to study a book? It said here, Atmaramas Chumunil 
nirgranta, apiurukuni. Nirgranta means several things. Nirgranta, granta means scripture. So nirgranta means that he was uh, atmarama, jamunayu, he was a self-satisfied person. He took pleasure in the self. Not in anything outside of himself. And he was thereby beyond books, nirgranta. He was beyond study. Hmm? You study to get a theoretical understanding such that it will foster practice and then you come to your realization and what value does the book have then? He was beyond books. Grantha also means not. So he was he had untied the knot of uh, material existence. Um, so a self-realized soul taking pleasure in the self beyond books, beyond the uh, material uh, identification. Um, the question, uh, the, the uh, 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 in spite of that. Hmm? And said, in spite of that, he took to the ahoituki bhakti. He took to unalloyed, uh, he took up unalloyed bhakti to Urukram. Urukram is a name for Krishna. Urukram, Kram means step. And Uru means like extraordinary or something. Great step. The great stepped one. Hmm? The great stepped one is, uh, another name for him is Trivikram. Trivikram. Kram means again step. And V means big step. Vikram. And three means three. The, man, the one of three big steps. So this is a name for the Bauman avatar who is said to have negotiated with Bali as a beggar approaching the king and the king offered him three steps of land or he asked for three steps of land. So um, so Urukram, Trivikram, Bhamana, he took one step and covered the whole lower worlds and uh, stepped all upper worlds, and there was nowhere left to step for his second, his third step. Bali could not satisfy him, so Bali put his head down and said, "Put your third foot there." Hmm? So this is a famous leela, one of the pastimes of the avatars of the Lord. But it's a nice word used here because it may also mean Urukram, the best path. Hmm? He took up the Aitukim Bhakti, which is. Uh, the the path that uh, the best steps to take path uh, or the the path to the Lord of the best steps it's the best steps because it's it because the steps themselves that that constitute the path are the goal this is again Ahoituki bhakti is the implication of Ahoituki bhakti. Bhakti for its own sake. Hmm? 
He's not doing bhakti to get something else. He's doing bhakti to get more bhakti. So this is the best steps, the best best path. Um, if the path is one thing and the goal is another, the question uh, it brings some question into in, in, into mind. How is it possible? Indeed, we don't think it is possible to get, Bhagavatam does not think it is possible to get uh, at any transcendental status without some influence of bhakti. You need, a, in other words, you need a spiritual method to attain a spiritual goal. Hmm? The spiritual method is such that it comes from up to down. Trying to fight our way up there by other methods. Um, somebody said, the other day, well, I think, you think, I think just why accept any a priori knowledge when I just sit and meditate and see what happens? Then I'll know what it is. I said, well, good idea. Try it. See what happens. But, you know, there are schools of meditation that have been around for a long time that have results. And again, as I said earlier, the East is, is kind of, this is his wealth. Hmm? centuries and centuries and centuries, thousands of years, they've worked on these uh, uh, subjective methodologies for exploring uh, the mystery of, of consciousness. So you could just sit down and make one up and you know, do it as ever you, you think best. Yeah, that's true. And, but what, what result you'll get, we don't know. And um, why why any a priori knowledge? Well, you know, generally we there are people that don't meditate at all because they 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 believe that consciousness is, is the brain. So why should I meditate? Or the Buddhists think it ends in sunyavad. We think it ends, it's a path toward love, a chintyabeda beda. So there are different kinds of meditation, for that matter. Hmm? And bhakti is a wholly descending type of meditation. So it, it proceeds from up to down. It's 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 a, an outreach of Bhagavan. The, the bhakti is a, is a, is a, is a tattva. It's the swarup shakti. So it comes to us and engages us in hearing and chanting. I mean, it is said that the scriptures deal with subjects that could not be known known otherwise. And you got to admit. Nobody could have come up with Krishna Leela without reading something like the Bhagavatam. I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary uh, concept. Uh, so, um, anyway, so the idea of a descending path means that it comes from that side. It's exported from there. Therefore, arguably, it has currency for bringing us there. If the path comes from this side, hmm, does it really have currency to take us from to that side? According to the Bhagavatam, according to the Gita, no. It doesn't. Therefore, some bhakti, which by this best sense in a general sense we mean grace, has to be part of your path, even the jnana path and the yoga path. Hmm? They're sophisticated paths, but they have their underpinnings more on this side. Hmm? Uh, so, a spiritual path for a spiritual uh, goal. Hmm? So bhakti for its own sake. Ahaitukhi bhakti tu urukram. Hmm? 
Um, and so he says, what? That, well, yeah, why did he take up this study? I mean, it's a big book and uh, it could take some time if it was self-realized. Um, because, why? Because itam bhutagunohari. He says, such is the nature of the qualities of Bhagwan. Itam bhutagunohari. That they do that. Hmm? Um, I think that uh, yeah, Prabhupada has a, quotes a statement in his commentary from the Hari Bhakti Sudodaya. The word itambuta means complete bliss. Hmm? So he was already atmaram. He was tasting the bliss of the self, and at the very least, the great relief that I exist. Nothing can stop me. I don't even need to wear clothes. Hmm? Nothing can harm me. Hmm? I am. And that's it. Hmm? And I love to exist. I'm not threatened by non-existence. Whatever the changing uh, material world, whatever transformations it goes through, it doesn't affect me. The brain may change, transform the mind may change, the body will die. I don't die. How can I die? How can something, consciousness, the subjective, it's not objective, something that's not physical, it's not a combination of atoms. It doesn't matter how many atoms you combine together, you're not going to get consciousness. Sentience doesn't come out of insentience. Feeling doesn't come out of something that has no feeling. That's how we define the physical world. It has no feeling. Hmm? There are things that have no feeling. They're not experiential existence. How are you going to get that? How are you going to get no feeling out of feeling out of something that has no feeling? They are so diametrically opposed to one another, so different. Hmm? Anyway, yeah, so that they're so different from one another. What was my point? They're so different from one another. I'm ahead of you, so you can't go back and get it for me. They're so different, they're completely different from one another. Hmm? That they're so different from one another that the one, the subjective consciousness, logically, arguably, does not come under the laws that govern the other, the physical. We're looking at the physical laws and we can't find consciousness or how it could fit in. Hmm? So we know, with regard to the physical, that all manifestations of it are here today and gone tomorrow, that the body will die. Hmm? It's all within time and space. The implications of consciousness being non-physical is that it's supernatural. It's not bound by the laws that of nature. 
Therefore, it's not subject to the influence of time and space. Now, if something is not subject to the influence of time and space, then it has no beginning and it has no end. Beginning and end are time. Hmm? Something that is not influenced by time has no beginning and has no ends. And existence cannot have a beginning. It can't come out of non-existence, in other words. Existence doesn't come out of non-existence. That doesn't make any sense. Hmm? <laughs> so, this, the idea is, well, you're eternal. Existence is eternal. It doesn't matter. If you turn the light bulb off here, it doesn't mean electricity is gone. It doesn't show up here. You may destroy the system for it to manifest in this particular way in this world, but not it. Hmm? The, 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 the famous um, kind of example of the Vedanta and the Bhagavatam cites it also. It's a, it's a huge subject for Advaita Vedanta. It's, a, it's not as much invoked by any means in the, in the, in the Bhagavad school, but the, the idea is that I mentioned earlier waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and beyond. So beyond means three or the fourth, and we even go the fifth hmm? dimension, frame, love of God. But the, um, the third stage, the deep sleep, is interesting because when we go into deep sleep and we don't dream, hmm? we, 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 we seem to go unconscious, right? So when you wake up from your from your long sleep and you, it was deep, you didn't dream. You go, wow, I was really out there. I was out. The implication is you cannot say I was out unless you were out. You understand? <laughs> so you were there. You were out. But you were there, just like, I might be here, but I might not be here. Right? I can say, yeah, I wasn't paying attention. Hmm? I was somewhere else. I was driving down the road, but I, I missed the turn. Because my attention was somewhere else. But I was there. My attention could be somewhere else, or my attention could be totally withdrawn. If there's no object, as there isn't in deep sleep, for it to be focused on, then it's an aspect of consciousness. It's luminous, therefore it illuminates. Hmm? But the point is, it's there. You cannot say, yeah, I was unconscious. Unless you were there. In unconsciousness. <laughs> You follow? This is, this is uh, the idea. So it, it, it wants to say, at least from the Bhagavatam's point of view, it's kind of an, an, an analogy or an experience in our everyday life that the, the physical world, the mental world, the physical world of sense objects is not available to me in deep sleep. Hmm? To experience. Yes, I'm still breathing physically and so forth. And, my physical self is still there, but from a consciousness perspective, 
in in a, in a state of deep sleep, there are no physical objects that I can focus on and experience, and there are no mental thoughts either, because there's no dreaming going on. So there's the physical dimension of the self. There's the psychic dimension of the self. If these are not operative, if the self was not independent of the mind and the body, then how would you know you experienced uh, dreamless sleep? Hmm. Of course, again, they're not entirely gone. The mind is still there. The body is still there. Hmm. The antakarna, the, the, the mental system, intelligence is still, it's very suppressed in deep sleep. Hmm. But the self is there, and therefore we say, I was out. Man, I was unconscious. <laughs> so, uh, so, this is all, you know, to use Prabhupada's language, you're not that body. And this is this is entry-level idea in, in modern terminology uh, for Krishna consciousness. This is the Atmarama experience of uh, Sukadeva. And the important thing, the wonderful thing, the extraordinary news of the Bhagavatam is, we're just getting started, Prabhu's. Come, enter the mystery of consciousness. Here's the basic mystery. It's not matter. And you're constituted of it. You're a unit of experiential existence. I exist. I experience that I exist. This is the real basic experience. You have other experiences that are the reflection of consciousness in mind in relation to things and so forth. But the underlying I am. Hmm? Sugadev realized this and he was deeply absorbed in that. The Bhagavatam is saying here, it's, it's a very profound statement. We're just getting started. Hmm? That's a huge mystery in itself. Sugadev solved it. He understood, I'm not matter. Wow, that's huge. What that means. Hmm? And, and, and then... You ready to sit down and study 335 chapters more <laughs> on the subject, 18,000 verses and so forth. And, uh, you know, he hadn't been schooled in Sanskrit or anything yet. He was ready to undergo all of that. Such, such is the nature of the qualities of Sri, which is the subject of Srimad Bhagavatam. Itam Bhutaguna Hare, Haitukim, Kurbanti Haitukim Bhaktim, Itam Bhutaguna Hare. Such is the nature of the qualities of Ri. He is complete bliss. You're just getting you're just getting started. Rupa Goswami says the bliss of Brahman. If you could if you could multiply it a trillion fold, it wouldn't compare to a tiny atomic particle of the bliss of Brahm. That is unimaginable. Hmm? It's a huge statement on the uh, about the nature of the subjective side and what depths there is to explore. And here we are in modern society, so busy exploring the unexperiencing stuff, matter, and trying to make get the full meaning of life out of that. Hmm? 
long time ago, Bhagavatam said, that's folly. Hmm? I don't care how technologically well you, what you do with it and so forth, and, and I'll take advantage of it whatever age I'm in <laughs> that to, to, to use in the context of pursuing um, the mystery of, of consciousness, but otherwise it has no value. Hmm? So this is a, you can see this is a, a huge statement here at the beginning of, of the, at the onset of the Bhagavatam. What we're, what, what we're in store for here. And shortly after, in a couple more verses, the narrative is going to take place, leading us, just to give you a, 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 a preview of upcoming events here, the, 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 the events leading up to, we've heard now, we're just coming to the conclusion here, of how Vyas came to write the Bhagavatam. We're hearing this in the context of Sukadev, Sukhugo, Goswami is teaching the Bhagavatam to the sages. This is how he begins to teach. Let me teach you about its history. Hmm? It was written but rewritten then by Vyas after he was schooled by Nard as to the cause of his despondency. He went into trance and he came out and redid the Bhagavatam. And then he taught it to his son Sukadev. Hmm? And now a narrative is coming in a couple of verses that begins up to the leads up to the to the instance which gave rise to Sukadev speaking the Bhagavatam to the Raj Parikshit, Maharaj Parikshit. Hmm? Which will then take that that introduction of events. You see, these are the histories, right? But what is, the, what, are the, what is the significance of these histories? We're going to hear the, the punishing of the son of Drona. What the heck is that? <laughs> you, know? Yeah, you know, and so forth. Some histories are going to come up through the rest of this, this canto. Hmm? But what are they all pointing to? Hmm? They're all really kind of leading up to this huge event of Sukadev. Well, he studied the Bhagavatam. We're left here. He studied the Bhagavatam. We have to go on for chapters now to hear how did it affect him, and what it what it what happened next. He spoke it to the Raj, and everybody who was anybody was gathered at the bank of the of the Ganges to hear that narration. He spoke it to I mean okay a couple of sages living in a hut in the Himalayas talking about something. What does that have to do with the world? Hmm? Wait a minute now. The Raj, the emperor, hmm, is now listening to the, what they talked about. I guess we better find out what that's all about. <laughs> this is the idea of the Bhagavatam. He wants to make the point, this is an important subject. The king heard it. Now. Anybody who was, who was anybody gathered there to hear what the boy will say to the king, who's a worldly person, who has everything, who's going to die like the rest of us. <laughs> what will the boy say? Wow. It's an exciting subject matter. Hardly a dusty old book that should sit on on the shelf. So, again, but these are the, these are, this is the history of the Puranas, especially the Bhagavatam, which is taking histories from other Puranas and so forth. For what reason are the stories being told? Just to chronicle the, the uh, human events? No. Hmm? just to focus on really significant spiritual events 
in the world that taking it notice of hmm, can change the course of our lives forever, to turn us from matter to consciousness, to enter the mystery, hmm, to enter a land of, of absolute knowing that's full with the, with the thrill of unknowing at the same time. What's next? It's like, I know I, I want to be here. I'm at home. What's next? Who knows? It's going to be good, but what, what it will be? Hmm? Uh, something like that. It's not, so it's a very dynamic hmm, kind of uh, unity, if you will, transcending the dualities of material existence. Uh, a, a, a dynamic and varied unity. Abed, abed. Achinta, abed, abed. Not one and different, but one and different at the same time, which is not entirely computable, is the point. Hmm? Such, such, uh, uh, such is the, what does the Gita Krishna say? Hmm? Pashyame Yoga Maishwaram, Pashyame Yoga Maishwaram, see my yoga. See the power, the Aishwaryam of my yoga. Hmm? This is the Chinti Beda Beda in the Gita, ninth chapter. I am in everything, everything's in me, but I'm not in everything. Hmm? I'm beyond everything. Uh, see my, Pashyame, he says, Pasha, see, Pashyame Yoga Maishwaram. I don't see my power of my yoga, my knowledge, my mis- the mystery of me. Hmm? This is what we enter into in Srimad Bhagavatam. This is an important subject for human society today, yesterday, tomorrow, for all time. Hmm? Are there any questions? Yes. Well, Bhagavad means God. So it's, you know, it's the Bhagavad Purana, the, the history of God, something like that. Vishnu Chakravartakar answers your question in a sense. He says he wrote particularly about Krishna Bhakti. Hmm. So I guess he added the tenth canto, <laughs> something like that. And, you know, and all of the things, the implication is all the things that he learned from Vyas or from Narada. Hmm? about Uttam Bhakti. Hmm? Uh, it was something about Bhakti, and you can find that in some other Puranas too. Something about Bhakti. But I mean, here, he's, he, this is very extraordinary. Hmm? He upped the whole thing. He, he, he put a, another chip in the thing. Anything else? Yes. Previous tries like um, from India, from what the, like, I'm not sure what she exactly they had, but she 
seen as as perfect too because these sampradayas were able to um, you know achieve bodhi bhakti and look for Narayan. Um, so you can say that that view is, is perfect. So I'm just trying to understand how is a chintavita um how is it exactly? I know it's better, but what is it that makes it better? Is it what would No. Um, what it is is, there's a very nice um, article by Dr. Kapoor that Bhaktisiddhanta Sosithakar liked very much about the different systems of Vedanta, Dvaita, uh, 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 Shankar's Advaita, Madhva's Dvaita, Ramanuja's Vishishta Dvaita, Nimbarka's Dvaita Dvaita, and uh, the Balava Sampradaya's Sula Dvaita, and the Chintibeta Beta. He compares them in there, and basically what he does is he shows that in every one of these sects there's a word used hmm, to try to explain, they're trying to explain the nature of reality. Hmm. And then he shows that the word achintya is better than Madhva's Vishesh or Ramanuja's, um, what is his word? Apritak Siddhi. Hmm. Uh, or Rama, or uh, Shankar's Abhachaniriya. Hmm? There's something about all of them that they use a word, and he, he shows the Chinti is a better way to explain it. And they've got like what they're saying, there's truth in it, but it doesn't say it as well. Hmm? And they're not, and they're imposing their intellect on the environment to an extent that Mahaprabhu did not. Hmm? He said, it's one and different at the same time. It shows itself like that. So, you know, they're, they're, they're right in many respects sufficient to be a metaphysical um, worldview uh, 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 that um, fosters a type of action that will result in transcending the duality of material existence and the false material uh, identity and so forth. Hmm? But um, uh, kind of the, the Bhagavatam, and here's the final work, kind of says it all you know, better, if you will. Hmm? And um, it has an emphasis on the Shakti. So like in Shankar's, there's no emphasis on the Shakti. Hmm? Neither to the same degree is it, I don't think, in any of these other sampradayas. Hmm. So um, that's an integral kind of part because it's it's what the shaktis are, what Bhagwan is one with and different from at the same time. So when you speak about that as a whole, hmm, and then as a as a unity, it's a dynamic unity. Hmm, Shaktis are one and different. It's a dynamic unity. And then the Shaktis take precedence in a way that they don't in other um, explanations. And of course, this ultimately comes to the point where the Shakti, Bhakti, Bhakti Devi, for example, Sri Radha takes uh, such uh, prominence. And, and in a way, yes, it does kind of take us to Goloka. Hmm. Or the Shakti, so 
Brahma that we say, Jai Radhe, Vrindavaneshwari, where bhakti has become, here's how prominent, as I said before, the shakti becomes. Here's Bhagawan, here's the jiva, and above them both in sense is bhakti. Drawing them both together at a point almost beyond themselves. Certainly bhakti is beyond the jiva, and bhakti, as much as it can can overwhelm Krishna, seems to be beyond him too. Krishna wanted to understand the perspective of himself, you know, for, for himself from the vantage point, from the perspective of bhakti. So bhakti becomes the worshipable object of Bhagwan. Hmm? Krishna's touching the feet of Radha. All this is is also it, it's possible to come out in a worldview of Chinti Beta Beta, where the Shakti takes such an important position in the explanation of reality. Hmm? And obviously there are different Shaktis, but the primal Shakti, the Sarup Shakti, is one of them. So exploring that, we see its position in a, in a way that we may not in, in, in others, something like that. Hmm? So they all have much in common enough to you know, provide some transcendence of material existence. And 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 and, the, and of course, of course, also with regard to the emphasis on shakti. And you see, he's saying being exists. It's it's it, that's like a what do they call it? tautology to well. Being exists. You're saying the same, same thing, you know? but it's like being exists means it is shakti. The moon shines. Well, if it didn't, it wouldn't be a moon. I mean, but you know, it does. It shines. So the whole doctrine is very much an emphasis on the shakti. Hmm? And as I said. Bhakti is constituted of that um, sarup shakti, and so we find this extreme emphasis. Bhakti gives bhakti, bhakti for bhakti's sake. You don't find that in Ramanuja. You know, they do, do karma, follow the karma marg, get gyan, you know, get liberated, and then you can do bhakti. Something like that. They have different ideas. This is, this is a very uh, Shakti-oriented uh, tradition. Of course, it's a super Shakti. It's not the Maya Shakti that's that's uh, emphasized, in this, but uh, the Sarup Shakti. Does that help? All right. Grandra Srimad Bhagavatam. Good day. Oh.